all manifestations of sin in our life spring from the sin of unbelief. This moment, this time is fulfilled, says Jesus, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this phrase, kingdom of God, it's no exaggeration to say we could spend week upon week talking about the kingdom of God. There have literally, without exaggeration, been hundreds of books written about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God means. Books that range from everything from the academic level to the popular level to the children's level. Everything. So much has been written and thought about the kingdom of God and there's so many aspects to it. There, are, there is the earthly kingdom that is in the process of being fulfilled, the future kingdom. There's the kingdom as ancient Israel saw it. There's the kingdom in the New Testament. There's all kinds of aspects of the kingdom of God. We're not going to get into that mainly because that's one of Mark's themes. And so we'll see it developed as Mark develops this idea of the kingdom of God. But suffice to say for now that the kingdom of God is something very important to Mark's story because he's telling the story of the king who has returned to claim his kingdom, to oust the wrong ruler, the illegitimate ruler from his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is something that's very important to uh, the story of Mark. So he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now in the Greek language, there's two ways of expressing nearness. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. You can express nearness in the Greek language in terms of time, right? To say, well, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's about to happen. It's just right around the corner. Like, uh, you know, the time is almost here. But there's another way of expressing nearness that's not time, but it's nearness in terms of space. It's nearby. It's right beside me. That's the one Jesus uses here. So the kingdom of God is not far away. It's right here. Because Jesus is right here. So Jesus is not saying here that His return to establish the permanent kingdom of God is just right around the corner. That's not what He's saying. He's using the word to mean Near, not in terms of time, but near in terms of space. Right here, right beside me. The kingdom is near because the king is near. The king is here. The king is in his territory. He's in his kingdom. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here it is, the meat of the both verses, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So just a few words, first of all, about this word repent. We're familiar with repent, but I think that, that this biblical truth of repent, repentance, metanoia, we know the word. I think that we often fail to fully understand what the Bible means by repentance. And I think that we tend to think of repentance as mainly or perhaps exclusively an emotion of remorse, a feeling of remorse or guilt a realization of guilt and a, a feeling of that guilt. Now, repentance certainly includes those types of emotions. That's, that's a component of it. But it's really important that we as God's people 
firmly know the biblical meaning of repentance, and repentance is not an emotion. In fact, we have no reason from the Scriptures to believe that repentance always has to include an emotion. Instead, what the Scriptures teach us is what repentance is, is a realization. It's a discovery. It's a discovery of sin. And upon the discovery of that sin, it is an action, a turning from the sin. But here's the other part. Because repentance is not one-dimensional. Repentance is two-dimensional. Repentance is the discovery of sin or the realization of sin and the turning from that sin and the turning to the according righteousness. That's repentance. That's what the Bible teaches us is repentance. Repentance is a, a dramatic transformation. Repentance is a radical transformation in which we are transformed into our very core, discovering sin within us, turning from that sin and turning to the according righteousness. That's, in fact, there's a word that we use today that describes repentance. It's the word change. So what you could do when you come across the word repentance in the scriptures, you can think change. That's what the Bible's talking about. That's what repentance is. Repentance is change. So we, we paused at the end of Ephesians 3, just about to begin Ephesians 4. And we, we've said this many times. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is all about taking those doctrinal truths and putting them into place. That's where Paul is going to say, put off the old man, put on the new man. Those of you in the body, put off lying to one another. Husbands, put off this not loving your wife like Christ loves the church. Wives, put off this not submitting to your husbands as to Christ, right? And put on the corresponding righteousness. So in a real way, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is all about repentance. That's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is. It is describing repentance. So this Metanoia, this repentance, it is this dramatic heart change that upon the discovery of sin or the realization of sin or the conviction of sin turns from that sin and embraces and follows the corresponding righteousness. So, so Jesus' message is repent. But that was John's message too, right? In fact, the very same words. Luke, Luke's going to use the exact same words for both John and Jesus' message. Repent and believe. So repent and believe. So this repentance, remember the baptism of repentance that we talked about earlier, this repentance is part of the message. Repent and the other half of the message is believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Now, you may find this surprising, but that right there is the only place you'll find that in your Bible. The only place you'll find in your Bible where we're told believe in the gospel is right there. The concept is all over the scriptures. But that, that phrasing, that wording is nowhere else in the scriptures. This imperative, this command that commands us to believe in the gospel. This is the only place that it's found. And Jesus here, Mark tells us that Jesus' message is repent, change, discover, realize the sin in you, turn from it, turn to the corresponding righteousness, and the other part of that message is 
Believe in the gospel. Now that word believe is the verb form of the word that when it's a noun is translated faith. Pistis is the word. Now we don't have a corresponding word in, in English and it's a real travesty that we don't have a corresponding verb of faith in English, but we don't have it. We don't, we don't say, I'm going to faith in that. It just The closest would be in trust maybe, but it is a, a deficiency of our language that we don't have a verb form of faith because the New Testament uses that word as a verb all over the place. And what Jesus is saying is, repent and faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel. So this faith, this believe, this entrust in the gospel. Of course, the word there means this good news of of what God has done. The good news that we, as hopeless, condemned sinners, God has on our behalf made the payment for us paid the penalty and purchased our forgiveness. This belief, this entrust, this faith in the gospel is the other part, the other component of Mark's message. Now, let's just notice, and these are just right now, we're sort of pointing out some things that we're going to see a lot more of as we go through Mark. But this, the, the theme of faith is a central theme in Mark. Mark really hammers down, he really twists the screws down hard on the theme of faith in his gospel. All over the place is the theme of believe in Mark's gospel. So first of all, we're going to see it. Oftentimes, we're going to see this theme of faith. For example, one instance, chapter 5 and verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, he's going to say, do not fear, but only only believe. Only believe. And you can see some other instances there. So we're going to see this visualizing this this illustration of believing faith. We're also going to see Jesus rebuke unbelief or rebuke unfaith. One example, Mark chapter 4 and verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You remember the calming of the storm? What happened to your faith? Why are you so afraid? So Jesus again and again is going to rebuke the lack of faith or the weakness of faith. Likewise, he's also going to commend the presence of faith. For example, Mark chapter 2, verse 5, the uh, paralytic is lowered down and it's gonna, we're going to be told that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And again and again, we're going to see the same sort of thing. We're going to see Jesus seeing faith and he's going to draw attention to it. He's going to recognize it and he's going to commend it. So this theme of belief, this theme of faith is big in Mark's gospel. And so here is presented to us is this two-pronged message, repent and believe, repent and faith in the gospel. So what this is saying to us, this most essential, this most basic of messages is there's repentance and there's belief. Now, belief, faith, this is, as we know, this is the very conduit through which the grace of salvation is given to us. Faith does not save us. But faith is the means by which the righteousness of God is given to us and the guilt of our sin is given to Jesus. It's done through faith. So faith doesn't save us, but faith is the means by which our sin is given to Jesus and his righteousness is given to us. Ephesians chapter 3 
in verse or chapter two, verse eight, by grace you have been saved. Okay, so faith is the the avenue through which that exchange happens. But also we're told that faith is also the avenue through which the ongoing grace of God is given to us. This is not in your notes, but James chapter 1, if you want to look in a pew Bible, it's page 1199, or James chapter 1. This will be familiar. You can just listen. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, James says, if your belief, if your faith is weak or absent, then the avenue through which the grace of God comes to you is closed. So James is saying that is the means through which not only the righteousness of Christ comes to you, and your sin goes to Jesus, but that's also the avenue through which the grace of God comes to you, is the avenue of belief, the avenue of faith. So this reality of belief, of faith, is so fundamental. It's so foundational. It is, we can rightly say, the primary commandment. The primary commandment, the foundational commandment, is believe. Believe. Look upon Jesus. Believe upon Jesus. That is the core. That is, it does not get more basic, more rudimentary than that. Look upon Jesus and believe. And so, in a corresponding way, the Scriptures teach us that the greatest sin is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is the sin of which we cannot receive forgiveness. The sin of unbelief is the sin that is most damaging to us. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of the Father that you believe on Him whom He has sent. And that command to believe, upon it rests everything else. And the failure to believe is the most damaging thing possible to our souls. Listen to the words of the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care that there's not among you an evil, unbelieving heart because it will lead you to fall away from the living God. Now we can we can discuss what the writer to the to the Hebrews is talking about. Is he writing to believers and telling them they can lose uh, salvation? We know that's that's not the case. Is he writing to unbelievers? We could we could have that discussion, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the clear and straightforward point of the verse is believe. Do not let yourself fall into an unbelieving heart. Because an unbelieving heart is the heart that falls away. So that is the most basic command and the most damaging sin is the sin of unbelief. In fact, we could also rightly say that all manifestations of sin in our life spring from the sin of unbelief. At the root of every manifestation of sin is the failure to believe. 
Let's think about this for just a minute. We'll, we'll think of the example of maybe the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery is the fruit, the root of which was the failure to believe that God's commands to be faithful to our spouses are for our best, for our good. The failure to believe that eventually brings forth the fruit, the fruit of adultery. Or the sin of the love of money. The sin of the love of money is the fruit whose root was the failure to believe that ultimate happiness is not in earthly things. And so chasing earthly things is not going to be the ultimate happiness that I seek. But the failure to believe that eventually will spring forth the root of the love of money. Or the sin of lying to get yourself out of a predicament. That's the failure to believe that, you know what, God is more powerful. And He has called me to be a person of truth in all circumstances. And so I can trust Him. He's trustworthy with this. See, it's every manifestation of sin always is the ultimate fruit of the failure to believe at some level. And so that is the most urgent need of our hearts is to believe more fully and more deeply. That is the central, most urgent need of your soul to believe more fully. Now, we all know that this is true, that all of us are a mixture of faith and unfaith. Don't we know that to be true? Every fallen human being, every redeemed fallen, fallen human being is still a mixture of faith and unfaith, of belief and unbelief, of strength of belief and weakness of belief. All of us are that way. We see this exampled in virtually every character in the scriptures, except, of course, Jesus. Think of Peter, who could believe enough to walk on the water a little bit, but not all the way. Or think of Thomas, who would say, I'll believe if I can see the scars. Or think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus as the risen Jesus opens their mind. And Luke tells us there that in this strange quandary of marveling and wondering and believing, yet they still doubted. How do you, do, how do you believe and still doubt? Because we're all mixtures of faith and unfaith. Later on, we're going to get the example of this with the father whose son was possessed by the demons who will say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So all of us are this bundle, this mixed up, confused, if you will, bundle of belief together with weakness of belief and lack of belief. Now, put that together with the danger of unbelief, the mortal danger of unbelief. Putting that also together with the fact that we just saw that all manifestations of sin come from some type of unbelief. Now adding that in a third way to the truth that many of God's graces come to us through the avenue of belief. And you put those three things together and what's before us is quite clear, isn't it? The most urgent, important thing that you need to do right now is believe and believe more and cry out to God, God, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. I am a wretched, 
ball of of faith and non-faith put together. Help me to starve my non-faith and help me to feed my faith because that's what I need most. I need most to believe more fully, more richly, more deeply, more trustingly. That is my greatest need. And this is Jesus' message. Repent and believe. Now, one last thing and then we'll be done. Notice just the simplicity of Jesus' message. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we're just coming off the tail end of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Some of the most rich, profound truths the New Testament has for us. And here we're going to be delving through Mark's gospel. And one of the things that we're going to come up against time and time again, especially on the heels of of Ephesians 1, is going to be this. This is like milk. This is so basic. I mean, the things that Jesus is going to say, yes, it's going to get more nuanced. But the message that Jesus is going to have, the message that Mark is going to bring to us is just going to be this message of just simple faith. I mean, couldn't it have been a more complex message or, or didn't it need to be a more complex? Because don't we live in such a complex world? Our world today is so much more complicated than Jesus' world. Or is it? I would suggest, and I think rightly so, that the world in which Jesus lived was just as complicated as ours. And He was surrounded by people that are just as sinful as us. And He was faced with some of of the most perplexing predicaments, just like we are today. The way that some of these problems look sure is different in the 21st century. But I would suggest at the end of the day, Jesus' world was just as complicated as ours and just as difficult to navigate as ours. And Jesus' answer, Jesus' approach, preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. You know how easily we just get ensnared today? We've seen this happen in so many bodies that we just get lured down this path of deviating from the simple gospel, from the simple preaching of the word into social justices or meeting the felt needs of people, both of which are important and both of which are natural outworkings of the gospel. But... Haven't we seen this over and over again? That in our pridefulness of thinking that, oh, we're just more complicated people today. This simple preaching of the word just won't do in the 21st century. Haven't we been lured by the enemy down a path of straying from what Jesus came to do, from what Jesus staked everything on? Jesus staked it all on the simple proclamation of the gospel. As Paul will say to Timothy, here's what you to do, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. That's what you're there to do. And somehow we've just gotten smarter than that. We've just gotten more complicated than that. We've just gotten more sophisticated than that. Forgetting that the simple preaching of the word of God 
has always been and always will be the means by which the kingdom of God advances. It's always been just the simple preaching of the straightforward word of God. So I'll just leave us with that encouragement that Jesus faced a world in which I mean, people would come to him in Luke 17 and say, Jesus, we got this really complicated scenario in which there were some people that were going to worship and, and Herod came and, and murdered them. What do you think about that, Jesus? You want to make a statement about that? And Jesus, nope, right back, right back to repent, repent and believe. Here's what I have to say to you, repent and believe. Or they'd come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, didn't you hear about that tower that fell on all those people? And what do you what do you have to say about Jesus? What about what do you have to say about that, Jesus? What do you, what do you think about that? Here's what I think about that: repent and believe. Or they would come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus would say, Here's what I got to say to you: repent and believe. So let's just leave ourselves with that encouragement that it can so often be so very discouraging to look around us at the culture around us and see earthly representations of success that are based upon deviations from the pure, simple preaching of the Word. And we can be fooled by the enemy into thinking that that's true success. When Jesus came preaching the Word and says to us, do the same.